Well, good afternoon, brethren. Privileged to be back here in Charlotte with you. My wife and I were able to spend the spring holy days in Colorado uh, with our brethren in Denver and then doing a little side trip over to Snowmass for the feast site prep work as I'm coordinating there for this feast upcoming. And uh, beautiful, beautiful in Colorado, still snow-capped mountains, but uh, warm, sunny temperatures. So we had a wonderful feast of unleavened bread, and I'm sure all of you did here as well. You know, there's one thing about the unleavened bread that I really don't look forward to, and that's eating unleavened bread, <laughs> because it really isn't that tasty, especially matzos. Now, I don't know about you people, but I don't like matzos personally. They're not definitely not at the top of my list, but I try to make sure that I eat some every year just because it is the bread of affliction. Some of the ladies make some really good homemade stuff. But uh, that's kind of hiding the meaning, I think. So I think you should afflict your soul a little bit, the days of unleavened bread. But then, of course, last Monday night, I'm sure we all just dove head first right into that big, you know, leaven pile of donuts or whatever it is that your heart desired. Uh, my wife and I went out to dinner and went to a restaurant unknowing to us that they don't serve bread. <laughs> they brought us a lovely little bowl of pickled cucumbers instead of a big basket of bread to the table. So we enjoyed a, a nice meal there, but uh, I did have to order some breaded onion rings just to be able to have something because I couldn't not have anything as such. But, uh, you know, the days of unleavened bread obviously are supposed to focus us on not just putting out, of course, the, spirit, the physical leaven, but putting the spiritual leaven out of our lives, you know, completely but it's something that isn't obviously just for the days of unleavened bread. It's something that we have to continue to do all year long. And I think we all know that's easier said than done, isn't it? Because it's been now, what, five days since the days of unleavened bread are over? And how many in this room are not without some kind of sin in the last five days? I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up. But we know it's a constant battle each and every day of our lives. And leavening of sin sneaks back in there just the way leavening in bread sneaks in. I mean, most of you were probably at home for the days of unleavened bread, but for my wife and I, most years we're traveling, and every meal that we eat practically is in a restaurant. And you have to constantly think of, okay, does this have, is it possible that this breading, you know, it says it's, it's this or it's that, and you make sure that no croutons on the salad, please, and know this and know that and know the other thing, and... Make sure, and asking all these questions about does it have this or does it have that in it. And so on top of all of our does it have ham or bacon or pork or whatever, now we have to get into the leavening issues. So it becomes a little bit of a challenge to eat out. And without knowing it, sometimes it just sneaks its way back in, doesn't it? You know, one, one evening we ordered a salad and forgot to say leave the croutons off. Of course, it didn't say they were on there, but sure enough, here comes the salad and there's the croutons right there in front of you saying, eat me, eat me. We, we didn't. We, we resisted. So also, as I said, we find sin sneaking back into our lives. Well, now the days of unleavened bread are over. We're five days down the road, and we're moving forward, hopefully not having gone back to our old ways. But when you think about the days of unleavened bread, as you get up each and every day, and you eat that unleavened bread, it's a constant reminder to us. And you have that reminder. Well, now that we no longer are eating unleavened bread, we don't have that daily reminder. So it has to be something that comes from within us, doesn't it, rather than without. In some ways, we have to be even more diligent 
to make sure and try to keep the sin out of our lives and make sure we don't let it let it sneak back in. What do you have to look forward to over the next year of your life as we look now almost a year down the road to the next Days of Unleavened Bread? What are you going to do with your life? How good of a life of a Christian are you going to be? How unleavened are you going to be? Now see, the right side of the room, they're in darkness. (laughs) The left side of the room is unleavened. (laughs) I don't know what's with the lights going on and off here, but... uh, (laughs) Suddenly, and I'm in the middle. I don't know what that makes me. <laughs> Laodicean, Mr. Weston? Okay, thank you. <laughs> Neither hot nor cold, he said. I'm like, okay, here I am. I Guilty as charged, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's a year to, we have to look forward to, but a year, as I look at it, of trials and miracles. That's what Egypt went through over the following year after they left Egypt, after the Israelites left Egypt, I'm sorry. They looked forward to and went through a year of trials and miracles. And I think as we look at our lives and ourselves, we can also look at our lives and what happens in our lives as a series of trials and hopefully miracles that God is working in our lives as we go through this next year. What are you going to go through trial-wise? What do you look for? What do you think is going to happen to you? Do you look for miracles when you have a trial? It's kind of hard to think about it from that standpoint. But as we go through the sermon today, I think you're going to make a, a connection there that maybe will help you and encourage you in this next year. Because as you do go through trials, you should look for miracles because they will be there if you're doing your part. Today is Earth Day. Now, maybe that's why the lights are going off, because the real Earth Day activists believe that we should turn the lights off, turn off the air conditioning, turn off the sound system, and, oh, by the way, you have to walk home from church today because you don't want to leave a big carbon footprint on the earth and uh, have to to deal with that because, you know, the world might come to an end next week if we don't do these things. Well, this is the the real fanatical activists, as it were, about Earth Day. But the reality of when you look at what I'm talking about here is it's a matter of change. It's a matter of we need to change. Each and every one of us, each and every day, needs to be working to change our lives for the better, correct? Not just on Earth Day, but every day. So today for the sermon, we're going to look at some lessons that we can hopefully glean from Israel as they went out of Egypt. And hopefully we can get some ideas and some thoughts going in our mind that can help us on our journey through the wilderness, so to speak, over the next year. Because Israel faced a lot of perils, a lot of trials, and a lot of tests. And we can learn from their trials and tests. The lessons I'm going to give you today are nothing new or nothing exciting. I don't have some new doctrine to give you or some new point that you haven't necessarily heard before. But hopefully I can present it in such a way that can make you think about your life and what you do in a little different way than you do on a regular daily basis. So let's begin by turning back to Exodus chapter 13. I'm sure you read through this during the Days of Unleavened Bread and the sermons you had here. And this will be some repeat, but this will be a reminder of what the Israelites were going through. In Exodus chapter 13, let's pick it up there after the the Passover has gone on and now the people are going out of Egypt. And we'll pick it up in verse 20. So they took their journey from Sukkoth 
and camped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So God led Israel out of Egypt. They didn't just say, okay, which way do we go, Moses? And he said, well, let's see. That looks like a good direction. Let's head over there. No, God led them. And as we know, for the next 40 years, that same pillar of fire and that same cloud led them each and every day. And that's my first lesson that I want to give you today. And that is to follow God's lead without question, without question. What if Israel had decided one day that, you know what, the clouds go in that direction, but I see something over here that looks a little better. Maybe we should go over this direction instead. What do you think would have happened? Well, obviously we know that didn't happen, but all too often in our lives, perhaps God is trying to lead us in a direction that he wants us to go, and yet we're looking in a different direction thinking, well, this is what I want. This is the direction that I want to go in, rather than going to God and asking Him for direction. Sometimes we get into trouble. We have trials and tests. What do we do? Do we look for God and His lead to help us get out of the problem we're in, get out of the trouble we're in? Or do we look to ourselves to say, I can find my way out of this. I can make myself, I can, I can help myself get out of this trial. I can help myself get out of this problem. Well, I think we know that's probably not the right direction to go, is it? But all too often, sometimes that is our first instinct is to say, oh, I've gotten in a problem and now I've got to find a way out and here's what I think I should do. Instead of taking the time to stop and ask God, which direction do you want me to go? Proverbs 4.26 says that we are to ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Solomon says, let them be established. That doesn't mean that you establish it yourself. That means it's established for you. Because God is going to provide us direction if we look to Him and follow Him. And that's what He wants us to do. He is the one that needs to establish our way. He goes on in verse 27 to say, Do not turn to the right or the left and remove your foot from evil. God says, I'm going to establish the way. This is the way. Walk you in it. And don't turn to the right or to the left. Because as Jesus says, narrow is the path that leads to life. And if you get off that path, you're going to find yourself in pretty bad trouble pretty quickly. Don't go your own way. There's an old song, you can go your own way, but you're going to find yourself in a world of hurt if you do that. We need to go God's way and let Him lead the way. Proverbs 14.12 tells us that there is a way which seems right unto a man, but what? The ends thereof are the ways of death. As I said, sometimes in our own minds we can think, this is what I need to do, this is the direction I need to go, and yet, what happens? That direction leads to trials and tribulations that we bring upon ourselves. We're going to talk a lot more about trials and and, and all. God allows these things to come upon us. But all too often, we bring them upon ourselves because we're not letting God lead us, because we're not following Him and allowing Him to guide our life. 
Let there be light. (laughs) And the right side of the room is in the light again. Good. Welcome back to the unleavened side of the room. For the Israelites, all they had to look do was to look up. All they had to do was look up, and there was God right there. They could see Him. They realized that that cloud in the sky and that pillar of fire were not just some happenstance thing. They realized that He was right there, right on them always. None of us have seen a physical manifestation of God, I don't believe. God revealed Himself to some of the saints in the Old Testament. But to my knowledge, He hasn't revealed Himself to anyone today. And so we have to, in essence, see Him spiritually. We have to be close to Him to realize that He is there and we need to follow His lead as such. We need to daily ask Him to lead us out of sin and into His paths, the paths that He has lit for our feet to walk. God is going to give us a direction to go if we look to Him for that help. If we find we're getting lost and the way ahead is not clear, then we should realize that's because we're not close to God. God was there as that pillar of fire at night to light the way. And if you don't have that light of God's truth leading you, that means you are off the path. You're going the wrong way. You're not allowing God to lead you. At this time of year, after the days of unleavened bread, we should be especially cognizant of this as we spent time preparing ourselves to take of the Passover, to be filled with God's Holy Spirit, then to go and take of the Passover in a worthy manner, having those sins completely forgiven. But now as we go back to our normal lives, quote-unquote, we have to fight and fight and fight each and every day to make sure that we keep that sin out of our lives, out of our lives. As I said, we are going to have trials. That's part of the Christian life. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It doesn't seem joyful at the time, but hopefully we can realize that God is using those things to hone us, to prepare us, to be a part of His family. But even in our trials, we can remember that God will provide a way out for us. He says He's not going to give us anything that is too difficult so that we can't make it. He's going to provide a way of escape. And so we can take comfort in that. There's many examples of men and women of the Bible who have allowed God to lead their lives. And I can't begin to go through one by one the examples. I'm sure each of you in your mind right now has different thoughts going through your head about this person or that person. But we think about some of the basic ones, men like Noah, who allowed God to lead him. God came to Noah and said, I'm going to destroy the whole world. But I want you to build this big ship and I want it to be this big and this this long and this high and this wide. And he told him exactly how to build it. And Noah said, okay. He didn't say, what? You want me to do what? You know, you listen to the old Bill Cosby record, if any of you old folks out there, I see a few heads nodding. Enjoyable and humorous. But, you know, you want me to what? A build a What? We don't see that in God's Word. Noah followed God, and he followed his directions. God told him exactly how to build that ark. What if Noah had decided, you know, I think it would be better if I built it this way or that way, and decided to make some changes, because after all, you know, God's a God being, but I'm a human being, and I know what human beings need better than God. And so therefore, I'm going to do it my own way. He didn't do that, did he? 
he worked on that ark for a long, long, long time. And he followed God's direction in the animals to bring in and how to, how to prepare the ark and how to close the door and everything else. And as a result, God protected him from a trial that came upon the whole world, as we know, where, when all of mankind that was alive other than Noah and his family died in that great flood because Noah followed God. Abraham, our father Abraham, he went through some great trials. Here he was living in the Ur of the Chaldees, the Beverly Hills of the Middle East at that time in the world, they say. It was beautiful. It was much nicer than it is today in that part of the world, I'm sure. And here was Abraham, a wealthy man. When you see all of the flocks and the herds and his whole household that left, he had a good life. God had blessed him greatly. But then all of a sudden one day God comes along and says, Hey, I want you to pack up all that you have and get on the highway and head west. Where am I going? Don't worry about it. I'll tell you. I'll lead you if you follow me. What if Abraham had decided he didn't want to do that? Well, thankfully he didn't. And as one of our forefathers, we can be thankful that we are enjoying the blessings that we have today because Abraham followed God. He followed his lead. God said, go down this road. Abraham went down that road. He followed him exactly wherever God wanted him to go. Many others, of course, like Moses, Elijah, Peter, Paul, you name it. All of these men followed wherever God led them. They followed him, regardless of the consequences. Regardless of the consequences. Abraham didn't worry about, well, what if I go down this direction? There might be danger down there. He didn't worry about the consequences of that. There was one other man who followed God. After his baptism by John, we read in Luke 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. To do what? To be tried and tested. Not to take him out there and put him in a nice, luxurious mansion with a swimming pool and servants to take care of him. He took him out to be tried and to be tested by Satan. To be tempted. Is God's Spirit going to lead you into trials and tests? Yes, it probably will. Because why? Because we need them. Say, Jesus didn't need to be tested as it were. He hadn't done anything. But God wanted to, in essence, prove a point that's, that Jesus was living a perfect life and not even Satan directly influencing him could cause him to sin. It said he led him into the wilderness and he followed and he went through those trials and he went through those tests there. He followed God his whole life as we know. Jesus never turned aside. God and him had made a plan before the foundations of the earth were established that he was going to live and he was going to die. And he, he was going to go through with it no matter what. Even at the end of his life, as he knew what lay ahead of him, as he prayed that final prayer that we have recorded in the Bible, he said, Father, if it is in your will, take this cup from me. He didn't look forward to being crucified, to be beaten beyond recognition. 
That was not something that he said, I want to do necessarily as a physical desire. He wanted to do it because he loves us and wants us to be a part of his family one day. But he said, if there's any other way to, other than this, but nevertheless, your will, not my will. He said, I am going to follow your will. I'm going to follow you no matter what I have to put up with, no matter what it means to me personally, no matter what the consequences are. And that's what we have to think about in our lives. No matter what the consequences are to us personally, we have got to follow God and not worry about it. Romans 8.13 says, If you live by the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You want to be a son of God? So do I. But you're not going to make it if you're not led by the Spirit of God. We have got to, in essence, God is going to lead us, but He's not going to drag us kicking and screaming. We have to follow. We have to do our part and follow Him as much as we possibly can. We've got to allow God to lead us. And He leads us how? Through Jesus Christ living His life in us, doesn't He? If we have been baptized and have God's Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is living His life in us. And He is the one who will lead us to the direction that God wants us to go if we look to Him and we look to His will. Back in Revelation, it talks about the 144,000 who were redeemed in chapter 14. And it said, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. You see, we're not only going to follow God and Jesus Christ in this life, we're going to follow God and Jesus Christ throughout all of eternity. And that's what God is looking for. Someone who will follow Him, who will obey Him, for all of eternity, not just for the here and now, not just because we can get something out of it right now, but because we want to, because we love God, we will follow Him. We're going to be followers of God and Christ for all eternity, and thus our following them has eternal consequences for us. If we don't follow them, we're not going to be in their family. In order for one to be a good leader, as we think about being leaders of the future and God's giving us opportunities of responsibility, we're going to be kings and priests. But in order to be a good leader, one first has to be a good follower. And that's the lesson that we need to make sure that we think about as we move forward over this next year, that we follow God, we follow His direction, we follow His guidance. Now, speaking of good followers, let's go back to our story in Exodus chapter 14. We pick up the story here in Exodus 14. And it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, in verse 1, and, they, and that they turn and camp between Pahahirath and Migdol by the sea, opposite Baal Zephon, and you shall camp before it by the sea. So the Israelites headed over to the sea. Sounds like a nice place. Go for a weekend, go down to the beach and enjoy the beautiful Red Sea there. I've been in the Red Sea. It's beautiful, clear water and all of that. But that wasn't the purpose of taking them over there because as he goes on in verse 4 to talk about that he would harden Pharaoh's heart 
so that he would pursue them. And so God did harden Pharaoh's heart, didn't he? God turned Pharaoh against him, and he said, I'm going to go after these Israelites, and I'm going to destroy them. Verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So they were bold going out when they first went out, but things changed very quickly. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihahareth before Baal-Zephon. He didn't just take out part of his armed forces. It says he took them all, his chariots, his horsemen, his foot soldiers, the entire army of Egypt, the most, what I, the word I'm looking for here, but the greatest country in the world at that time, they had tens and hundreds of thousands of soldiers and horsemen that went out after them. And it says they overtook them then. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they said, Oh God, thank you for bringing this trial upon us. We're so thankful. Is that what happened? You guys watched the movie The Ten Commandments recently? It's funny, of course, they take a lot of license with what really happened, but of course, according to the movie, they were still walking in up to the sea when this all happened. They, of course, the Bible says they were already camped there. But I just remember that one scene. I watched it last week one night when it was on in our hotel room. And the, the, the lady turns and she looks and she's like, Ah! She was afraid. It said that then, then uh, verse 10 here, So they were very afraid and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. They cried out. Now if you look up that word for cried, it actually can be translated as shrieked. They shrieked out to the Lord, to God. They were like, God, we're going to die. Vehement cries of fear. The Israelites, all they saw was the whole host of Egyptians' army. They didn't see God. And they cried out with fear. Well, that's my second lesson for the sermon today. Lesson number two is to cry out to God when we have trials and tests. Israel did the right thing. They cried out to God. As we're going to see, they didn't handle it correctly. But their first reaction was to cry out to God and to ask for help. They saw the danger and they cried out. When you have trials and tests come upon you, do you really truly cry out vehemently to God and ask Him to work in your life, to help you, to protect you, or whatever it is that you need? Or do you put your head down, as some of us are prone to do, and say, okay, it's tough, but I'm going to get through this, even if it kills me? Well, it might. It might, if you try to do it yourself. All too often, especially us guys, maybe, we just have that independence to say, I got myself into this, and I can get myself out. I don't need anybody's help. You know, I had my own construction business for most of my life before I came into the ministry full-time. And I had some good jobs, and I had some bad jobs. And I had one really, 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 really bad job. And it was a real trial. It was a real trial. 
God really provided a way out of it for me. The job was starting to go badly, and I could see that. And one of my employees that worked for me, who had been a good friend of mine most of my life, I had grown up with him and his brothers, and he came to me one day, and he said, Jim, he said, you need to walk away from this job right now. He said, that lady wants to hurt you. He said, she has it in for you. I don't understand why, but I can just tell by the things that she says. And I just said, Jeff, don't worry about it. I can deal with it. I can handle it. It's okay. I thought I could handle any situation that came along. I'd been through many, many different situations, and I could do it. And so I put my head down, and I bowled my way on through. And it was finally a few months later that the job totally went south on me, as we say, and it hurt dearly. It hurt dearly in the pocketbook especially, cost me a lot of money because this lady refused basically to work with me. She did everything she could to go around me and caused me one problem after another, after another, after another. And finally, over a year later, after attorneys and lawsuits and everything else, I had to walk away from it all because it was a waste of time. She basically told her attorney, she said, I would rather give you $100,000 than to give him a dime. And I just, my attorney said, I think you're wasting your time here. This could drag out for years and I couldn't afford it. In hindsight, what did I see? I saw that Jim Meredith tried to make it work, tried to make it come together. I didn't cry out to God and say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. I need a way out. I need a way of escape. I tried to do it on my own. And because of that, I paid the price. Interestingly, back in, in Exodus 2, Israel had cried out to God once before. In Exodus 2, verse 23, we read, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of bondage, and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning, their crying, if you look up that word. He heard their cries. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And then God began to perform the miracles to deliver them. God will perform miracles in our life if we look to him, if we go to him, if we follow him, let him lead us, if we cry out to him. God wants us to cry out to Him. He wants us to communicate with Him. We tend to hold things in. God says, don't hold it in. Cry out to me. This is the kind of crying that has to be done with great emotion. The Israelites were crying out because of their bondage. They were emotional about it. The Jewish and other Israelitish peoples in the Middle East today are very emotional. Those of us hard-hearted Israelites in this country aren't quite as emotional anymore. We need to get back some of that emotion. Be emotional with God. Show Him that we care and that we really mean it. Psalm 30, verse 2, we see David cried out to God and he said, I cried out to you and you healed me. David was sick of some affliction and he said, I cried out and in essence, you performed a miracle in my life. God wants to perform miracles in our lives. But He wants us to go to Him. He wants us to reach out to Him, to be close to Him. 
In Psalm 34, verse 17, it says, The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of their troubles. Notice that he says he delivers them out of their troubles, not from. You see, I had an interesting conversation with my older sister Liz a few years ago. And something about this came up. And she said, you know, I was thinking about this recently. And she said, I realized something. She said, God doesn't deliver us from trials and tribulations. He allows them to come upon us because we need them to strengthen us, to help us. But he does deliver us out of them. And we have to remember that. Just because we're having a trial and a test doesn't mean God hates us. God will deliver us out of them if we cry out to him as David did here. Turn over to Psalm chapter 142. This entire psalm here is a wonderful example of David as he cried out to God. Psalm 142. Notice here in my Bible it says, A contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in a cave. Remember, David spent years, probably over a decade, running for his life. Saul trying to kill him. Here he was the anointed next king of Israel, running for his life, living in caves. At one point, obviously, it got to him, and he cried out this prayer where he says, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. He doesn't just say, I just say, God, help me. He says, I pour out my heart to him in essence. God, why am I having to go through this? What do I need to do? What do I need to change? How do I need to do things differently? How do I need to serve you better? I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path and the way which I walk. They have secretly set a snare for me. He knew those snares were out there. Saul was after him, constantly trying to catch him, to kill him. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. No one other than the one that he was pouring his soul out to at that point in time, in essence. I cried out to you, O Lord, and you said, You are my refuge. And I said, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. He realized... Of himself, he couldn't deliver himself. Saul had the entire army of Israel out looking for him. And David was just asking for deliverance. Asking to be let let free, in essence, from his persecution. Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. He finishes up this prayer on a positive note. Saying, God, I know you're going to take care of me. I know that you are going to deal bountifully with me. And as we know, ultimately, when Saul did die and David was made king, God did deal bountifully with David. David was a man after God's own heart. He had that type of emotional 
vehement cries to God when he was in, in times of trouble and turmoil. Do you ever feel like this? Do your trials get you down in the dump so much that you just don't know where to go or where to turn or what to do? We must never let a trial separate us from God, but rather it should drive us to God, not pull us away from. Help us to get closer to Him to realize that that is our hope and that is our refuge. This is one of the lessons of the days of... of, of uh, I'm sorry, the days, but of the... Israelites leaving Egypt they cried out to God and he heard their cries every time they didn't do it with the right attitude in the right way as David did here and as the others we read about we have to learn to do it in the right way at the end of his life we see Jesus also cried out to God one of the last things recorded that he ever said was, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was vehement with that prayer. He had been, in essence, one with God. He had had that closeness to God. He felt God's presence in his life constantly, even as a human being. We read of the instance where the lady touched the hem of his skirt, it said, and she was healed. And he immediately felt that power being pulled from him as she was healed. That's how close he was to God. And so when God finally at that last little bit of time before he died, placed the sins of the world in essence upon his shoulders, God had to turn away. God had to in essence withdraw his power from him because Sin and righteousness cannot, in essence, abide together. And he felt that. He felt God having no longer been there with him in his spirit, so to speak. That it had gone from him. That's how close he was to God. And he cried out vehemently to God. Hebrews chapter 5 talks about this. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. Who, talking about Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, was heard because of his godly fear. It says he had vehement cries and tears. God wants us to have that same kind of passion as we go to him and we cry out to him for help. That same kind of passion that Jesus Christ had. God does hear when we cry out to Him and He will answer. However, we have to remember the answer is not always going to be what we want and not necessarily when we want it either. And that brings me to my next point. Go back to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 11. Picking up the story here after the Israelites had cried out seeing the Egyptians. And, it's, and then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt so with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. 
once again, thinking back to the movie, and here is Edward G. Robinson, and he's playing Dathan. He said, yeah, see, Moses, you brought us out here to kill us all. We don't want to follow you. You don't know what you're doing. Come on, people. Tell Moses where he can go. Follow me. I'll take you back to Egypt. I'll take you back to the leeks and the garlic. Yeah. That's my best impression. I'm sorry. Not a very good one. But they cried out, but then they immediately turned against God and they started accusing Him. They started accusing Him. This time the Israelites didn't get it right. They cried out, but not in the right way. And the lesson that they didn't need to learn, that we need to learn, is lesson number three. And that is to wait on God. Wait on God. As I said at the end of my last point, God doesn't always deliver us out of our trials and tests when we want. Why? Why is that? Because God knows what we need. It isn't a matter of what we want. It's what we need. You know the old saying that patience is a virtue? Well, it's true. Patience is a virtue. The Israelites had very little of it, as we know. Because here they were, just before crossing the, the sea, all they saw was the army of Egypt there, and Moses, you brought us out here to die, not what's God going to do for us now. I mean, to me, I look at it, and I'm sure all of us in this room, having read the story and seeing all of the miracles that God performed in Egypt, you've got to wonder when the Israelites were going to get it. It seems like they were just stupid. I mean, God performed these incredible miracles of the, of the blood, the water turning to blood and the frogs and the lice and the Passover and all of the other things, the hail mingled with fire. And God brought them out. He let them spoil the Egyptians and get all this gold and silver and all these other things. And somehow they just didn't get it. It's like immediately they turned on God. And I'm just like, what is wrong with you people? Can't you see? Why don't you just wait and let God say, okay, yes, there's an army there, but now watch what I'm going to do. God's going to show them the way. We may be facing a huge trial in our life. We just have to wait on God to say, let me show you how I'm going to help you through this. Let me show you how I'm going to help you get across this Red Sea that you have in front of you. If life was easy and everything happened exactly as we wanted it, what lessons would we learn in life? Think about it. What lessons would you learn if everything was just hunky-dory? I have the best wife ever, and, and I do. No. Yes, I do. I can't say otherwise or I'll be real big trouble, but I have a wonderful wife. You have wonderful children. You have a good job. You just got a raise. You have a new house. You're... you're you're, you got this, you got everything working for you, and everything's perfect, and my life is just wonderful. What lessons are you learning? How are you learning to fear God if everything in your life just goes hunky-dory? God expects us to be constantly learning lessons, to be improving, to be overcoming. And you can't overcome if there's nothing to overcome because you're on the top of the heap, you know? You're the king of the jungle. There's nobody. You're top of the food chain, whatever you want to call it. 
if there's no trials and tests there to overcome, you don't have to wait on God because there's nothing to wait on. God allows us to go through all kinds of things, but we have to make sure that we're willing to wait on Him and His will in our lives. It's not a matter of us and what we want. It's a matter of what God is working in our lives. It's a matter of following His will. It's a matter of waiting on God for His answer so that we can truly be prepared to be a part of His family one day. Once again, we think about the ones in the Bible who went through all different trials and tests and the length of time. I talked earlier about Noah and God told him to build this ark. And so he starts working on it and he works on it for a year and two years and five years and ten years and 50 years down the road, he's still building an ark and there's not a cloud in the sky. And 75 years goes by and 100 years go by. Finally, after 120 years, God brought the flood upon the earth. How long have you had to wait on God? 120 years? I don't think any of us is going to wait on God for 120 years because none of us is probably going to live to even be that old. Much wait on God to deliver us or for His deliverance from what's coming upon the world. Abraham, once again, he went out of Ur of the Chaldees and he lived in tents and, and dwelt in the wilderness. We never read of him living in some big mansion. We, t we hear about him living in tents. He lived outside of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and those areas. Those are desolate places. Those are not beautiful, wonderful places. When God called it to Abraham and had him go out, he was 75 years old. He died a hundred years later. A hundred years waiting for God. David, as I mentioned earlier, anointed king of Israel. Somewhere, we guess, around maybe 18 years old or something. He could have been a little younger, a little older. But he wasn't made king of Israel until he was 30. 30 years old. He had to wait on God, running for his life. Saul continually trying to find him and to kill him. It was like he had this little pet peeve against David. We would read nothing that David ever did to Saul other than Saul was jealous of him and for some reason wanted him dead. And for 10, 12, 14 years, whatever it was, David had to, in essence, run for his life. The prophet Daniel, you read, was taken to Babylon when he was a young man. Perhaps he was 16, 18 years old. Could have been 20, we don't know. But he was young. He had to wait on God the rest of his life. He was a prisoner. He was a prisoner. He was treated well. I see you guys over here must be sinning again. <laughs> Put that leavened bread away, whoever's eating it. But Daniel waited on God. We think about what Daniel went through in the den of lions. He knew he was going to get thrown in there, but he knew God could intervene. And as they started taking him to that den, he kept thinking probably, God, now would be a really good time. It's a really good time right now. How about now? And the door opens and he's like, God, we're running out of time here. And they threw him in. And he waited all night before finally the king brought him out the next day. 
God delivered him. He waited. He didn't worry about his life. He didn't worry about what he was going through. He worried about what was, what was, what, that what he was doing was right with God. And that's why he was thrown in there in the first place. Because he prayed to God, because he trusted in God, because he wanted to follow God and his will. He didn't want to go his own way. He wanted to go God's way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends, we know the story of them. They refused to bow down to the, and worship this idol. And, the, and when it was found out, and the king brought them before him, and he said, I'm going to give you one last chance here, guys. One last chance. If you don't bow down and worship the next time the music plays, you're getting thrown in that fiery furnace. And just so you know I mean business, I'm going to heat it up seven times hotter than it is right now. It's going to be so hot, you're going to burn up before you hit the ground. What did they do? Did they cry out to God? I'm sure in their hearts they did. But did they say, King, just give us a minute. Let's discuss it. We'll talk about it. We'll get back to you. Just give us a couple of minutes here. It's not what they did. What did they do? They immediately, in essence, replied to him and said, You know what, King? And this is my own paraphrasing of it. We don't have to wait till the music plays. You might as well just throw us in there right now because even when the music plays, we're not going to bow down and worship your idol. We're not going to do it. So just throw us in there right now. And in their mind, they, I'm sure they were crying out to God, saying, God, we need to be delivered. But interestingly, they said to him, You know what? No matter what happens, whether we die in that fire or whether God delivers us and we live, we're going to be delivered from you and your tyranny, in essence, is what they said. You've got to imagine that that really upset, I'll use that word, the king greatly. And he had them fire that furnace up and they threw him in there. They didn't worry about it. They realized, we're going to wait on God and his answer. We're going to wait on God to deliver us. Whether he delivers us in this life or in the next, so be it. We've got to make sure that we're willing to wait on God. Hebrews chapter 11. Turn back here a few pages in Hebrews. Speaking of Abraham and the others. Let's pick it up here in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him with the same of the same promises. As I said, they just dwelt in tents. He didn't live in some big luxurious mansion with air conditioning and slaves and swimming pools and everything else. He lived in tents in the wilderness, so to speak. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He waited on God. He said, this is not what I look to inherit. As we look to our lives and what we have or what home we live in or where we live or what we have in our bank account or however you want to look at your life, it's not about that. It's about the future. It's about the life that God has 
in store for each and every one of us if we will look to Him. Verse 13, these all, talking about, of course, Abraham and Sarah and others, Noah, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Moses and Noah and others, they saw the big picture. And that's what we have to constantly keep in mind is the big picture, not the here and now, not the trial that I'm going through today, but the big picture of God's coming kingdom and what He has in store for us. The wonderful inheritance that we have to look forward to. That's what it's about. Waiting on God helps us build the faith that we need. These are the faithful men of the Bible. They died in faith, having not received the promises. There is nothing that this life can promise us that we would want or should want. This life has nothing to give us but pain, suffering, and death, so to speak, because ultimately the life that we are going to be born into in the kingdom of God is all that really matters. Going through trials and tests and waiting on God in them helps us to develop and build the faith that we need to have my dad, as I think about him sitting at home today, is at this point in his life, he's waiting on God too. He would love to just be able to go to sleep tonight. If you went and talked to him and you walked up to him, as so many of Mr. Weston and others have come to the house, well, how are you today? I'm dying. But he's positive. He knows he's dying. He doesn't worry about that. He said, I've lived a good life. I, I've, I've been able to have and do so much in life, traveled the world, but most of all his life being about doing the work. He's just waiting on God right now. He's praying that God will let him go to sleep. He's looking forward to that seventh trump being sounded in the kingdom and being resurrected and gotten rid of this frail human body that he has. Looking forward to having a spirit body, no more pain, no more suffering, no more dying, no more hunger, no more thirst. Just a perfect body. But in this life, he knows that all he, all he can do right now is wait on God. His life is in God's hands. And that's the way it is for each and every one of us. He's in a little different situation physically than most of us. But we've got to wait on God and put our faith in Him. And that's where his life is. His faith is in God. He knows God's in charge, and he knows God knows what's best. He's going to cry out to God, and I'm sure he has many times over this last couple of months since his health has taken that turn side south, so to speak. But he's waiting on God for God's will to be done. Waiting on God, as I said, helps us to build the faith that we need, which leads us to the last point. Hebrews, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 14 again. Let's go back to Exodus 14. And we'll pick up the story in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, of course, they have just complained and said, why have you brought us out here to kill us? And then Moses stands up 
And there you see Charlton Heston standing up before the band. He says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Well, I'm not sure that Moses was quite an impending figure as, uh, imposing figure, I mean, as uh, Charlton Heston. But that's what he said to him. He said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you serve, whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you will hold your peace. They were crying out against God at this point, And Moses said, shut up and watch what God has to do. Let God work in your life. And so as we know, the sea parted. And God blew the strong wind through the middle of the sea and dried the ground so they could actually be able to go across it. Picking up the story here in verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind by night and made the sea into dry land and the waters divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and their left. And so we don't know how deep it was at the point they crossed. There's all kinds of speculations that they crossed here or there or whatever. It doesn't matter whether the wall, the wall of water was 50 feet high or 250 feet high. Whatever it was, it was an incredible miracle by God. But the Israelites, it said, did at that point go down into the sea. And that brings us to our fourth lesson that, we wanna, that I want to talk about here today. And that is absolute trust in God. Absolute trust in God. I talked about waiting on Lord on the Lord being a lesson of building faith. And faith and trust are very similar, but I equate trust to stepping out on faith, to acting upon it. Some people have faith, so to speak, but they're not willing to actually do something. This is being willing to actually physically do something. And the Israelites at this point did go through the sea. Perhaps they were more afraid of the Egyptians who were behind them than they were of the walls of water. But whatever the case was, they did trust God and they did go down through that sea. Men of faith have stepped out and trusted God all through the Bible. We read example after example after example about it. You think about David and Goliath. What a wonderful story. Makes a great story for young kids. But when you think about what he did there, that he, as a young, untrained soldier, was willing to go up against someone that was probably close to twice his size, who was a trained killer, and just realize that God's in charge. If God wants me to live, I'll live. If God wants me to die, I'll die. Just as I talked about with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, and many others. They put their trust in God. They willingly said, I'm going to do what's right no matter what it costs me. No matter what the consequences are, I'm going to do what God, what I know God wants me to do. And that's what we have to make sure that we're willing to do. The Apostle Paul... He went through many trials and tribulations in his life. He stepped out in faith many times, and he put his trust in God. 
Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. We read of some of the things that he went through. Second Corinthians 11, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequent. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. <sighs> this guy had a rough life. I'm breathless just reading what he wrote. He went through a lot. He didn't quit. He didn't give up. No matter what happened to him. Beside other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. See, he ends up with saying, it isn't about me and everything I went through. I'm concerned about God's brethren. That's why I'm here. I'm here to do a job that God gave me to do. And if it means I have to get beaten or stoned or whipped or shipwrecked or bitten by a serpent, which he didn't mention, or whatever else, I'll do it because this is what God wants me to do. I'm putting my trust in God. One of my favorite stories of Paul is when Paul was there at Lystra. I won't take the time to read it. I think... Most of us know what happened. It says they took him out of the city and they stoned him, supposing him to be dead. Remember what we just read in Death's Often, Once I Was Stoned? They don't know, say they don't know, we don't know whether or not David, or, or I'm sorry, Paul, was alive or dead after he was stoned. Back in that day and age, they knew how to stone people. And it wasn't by smoking something either. They threw big rocks at their head. The whole idea of stoning someone was to kill them, not just to hurt them. And he lay there on the ground in a pile of blood. And it says the disciples gathered around and he stood up. And what did he do? He walked into the next city. That in itself was a miracle. The fact that he could stand up and walk after a stoning. But quite possibly he might have been physically dead and God resurrected him. We don't know and it doesn't matter. Either way, he went through a trial and a miracle happened. God raised him up and he went into the next city. And what did he do? Did he say, you know what, God? I was okay with the shipwrecks. I was okay with being beaten. I was okay with being thrown in prison. But I draw the line at stoning. I'm done. That's it. Sorry. See you, see you around. No, he went into the next city. And he preached the gospel. And then we read in the next verse, what does he do? He goes right back there to Lystra where they stoned him to death and he preached again. You talk about a glutton for punishment, it was Paul. But God was working with Paul. God was using Paul greatly. God was working in his life. Paul was a man of faith and courage 
and he put his trust in God to lead him wherever God wanted him to go. He had courage and faith, and he endured to the end, fighting the good fight of faith. Paul followed God's lead. I'm sure he cried out to God many times throughout his life, and he waited on God time after time of being thrown in prison or beaten or whatever the case might be. But he always put his trust in God that God would perform a miracle in his life and bring him ultimately into his family. That was what it was all about. Do you trust in God enough to give your life to him? Do you really trust in God to be willing to lay down your life? We live in a safe society, or so we think. It's probably not nearly as safe as we all wish it was. But when we read Matthew chapter 24, and we read what we have to look forward to not that many years in the future, as we see what's going to happen, Matthew 24 verse 9 says what? Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Jesus is saying this to us today. We are the last generations before Christ returns. He said they're going to deliver you up and they're going to kill you. And you will be hated of all nations for my sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Are we safe from religious persecution? As I said, probably not as safe as we realize. Are you willing to stand up for the truth, even if it's going to cost you your life? Absolute trust in God is being willing to lay down your life for Him and the truth. We have to have that willingness. Hopefully, most of us won't have to go through it. Some of us will. Because Christ said it. It's going to happen. We've got to be prepared to put our trust in God and say, you know what, God? No matter what they do to me, I'm not going to deny your name. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to be willingly to lay down my life for you and the truth. The Israelites showed their trust in God by going into the sea and crossing the other side. As I said, perhaps they were more afraid of the Egyptians than they were of what God had put in front of them with this narrow pathway to what seemed like freedom, but they willingly did it. Each of us here today is going to have to cross a sort of Red Sea in our life. We're going to have to be willing to trust God and to trust in the miracles that He's going to perform in our life. God performed a miracle for the Israelites as he then destroyed the entire armies of Egypt. Tens of thousands of Egyptian soldiers died that day. They all died. God tells us that. Exodus chapter 14. Verse 28, Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. Not one person lived through it, it says. But you know all of, Egyptian, all of Egypt heard, it, heard of it because 
an entire army went out, and not a soul ever came back. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared God the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. It says they feared Him and they believed Him. But their fear and their belief didn't last long. As you read on later in the next chapter, they went to Marah and the waters were bitter. And immediately what did they do? Say, okay God, we're going to wait on you. We're going to put our trust in you that you're going to take care of us. We know you brought us out here for a divine purpose. And we want your will to be done in our lives. Not what they did, is it? They complained. They moaned and they groaned. Only three days later after they saw this. They they believed God right then and right there. But how quickly that belief was gone. That trust was gone. When suddenly they needed a little bit of water to drink. And they couldn't just wait on God. They didn't have trust that God would take care of them. In a similar way, God is going to work with us. He's going to give us, as I said, trials and tests that we're going to have to go through. He's working a miracle in our lives much greater than anything we can really fully imagine in this physical human life. It's a much greater miracle than He worked for Israel, that's for sure. The miracles for them were just physical. The miracle He's working in our lives is spiritual. We have to make sure that we understand that miracle that He is working and that we allow God to help us and to guide us and to lead us. As we move forward from the days of unleavened bed and toward Pentecost, let's not forget the reasons, the lessons, I'm sorry, that we should have learned at this time from the days of unleavened bread and from what Israel went through as they left Egypt. As I said, these lessons are nothing new or interesting, but I hopefully put them in a light that you can think about a little differently as you go through your next year toward the next days of unleavened bread, toward the next and the next and the next, that we can look to God, realizing that He is working in our lives just as He was in the, in the lives of the, of the Israelites back in that time and day. God's master plan is awesome. The Israelites didn't see that. They didn't see the big picture. They moaned, they groaned, and they complained. And they all died in the wilderness, not inheriting the promised land. Not one of them that left Israel, other than Jacob, I'm sorry, than um, Caleb and Joshua and their families. Not one over 20 years old went into the promised land. That wasn't God's desire. He took them right up to the promised land. After He gave them the Ten Commandments, they went up there. And He said, go in there and inhabit the land. And they sent the spies in. But they didn't trust God. They didn't get the big picture. God is in charge. God wants us to understand that. To realize that He is guiding and leading our lives if we will just let Him do that. God's master plan is awesome and we should be extremely thankful that He has revealed it to us. It's an awesome plan. He wants us to have a part in that plan. He wants us to be there. 
Just because the days of unleavened bread are over doesn't mean we can go back to the leaven of our own ways. We've got to keep the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth in our lives each and every day, allowing God to lead us. If we will just follow God's lead wherever He takes us, if we'll fervently cry out to Him, but wait patiently for His answer and put our absolute faith and trust in Him, God will deliver us. And what we look forward to for that deliverance And what we know that we have to look forward to is that we will make it to the land that He has promised for us. And that is His kingdom of God. So let's all just do everything we can to put our lives in God's hands, to trust Him. And if we do, we'll be there with Him in His kingdom.